This is Work Revolution, where we drop the boardroom speak and have real, candid conversations about what's going on in workplaces today and what needs to change in response to our changing world. In many ways, women are well prepared for a gender balanced workforce. There has been years of focus on women's educational advancement and development of their capabilities in traditionally male dominated spaces and in executive leadership. But how well prepared are men for this culture shift? Hello, and welcome back to Work Revolution. I am your host, Deborah Aidy, and in this episode, I'm talking to Jake Sticka, who is the co-founder and executive director of Next Gen Men, where they are promoting gender equity through conversations and programs focused on men. Jake, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for the invitation. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think of where to, to kickstart us off. Uh, we, you and I were talking a little bit in general about, about patriarchy and about what your organization next gen men does. And I, I became curious of how you would explain this to a group of men who may not be all that receptive or not just not readily see, uh, that, that this exists may not really be fully on board with the fact that it exists or that it's potentially problematic. So why don't we just start with that? Like, tell me how you would explain this to, to a group of, of men. Yeah, totally. And, and it is definitely something that I received pushback on, but um, you know, if we go to the etymology of the word patriarchy, uh, potter means father and archain means power, father power. And if we think about the society and the culture that we have been socialized in, I think many of us can probably look to our fathers and if not our fathers, definitely our grandfathers who were the rulers of their little family units, right? The patriarchs. And, um, you know, that's, that's the world that we've inherited and we've made a lot of progress advancing women and girls in that time. And I think that's where some of the pushback is coming from saying, oh, well, maybe it used to be that way, but it's not that way anymore. So then I say, okay, well, let's look at some of the most influential bodies of power in the world. One is the Fortune 500. We know that out of those 500 CEOs, we're at an all-time high of, I think, 34 female CEOs. So that's roughly 7% female representation in leadership. And that's just the CEO seat. That, that's yeah. not the rest of the C-suite, the VPs, the board of directors. And then if we look at another global body of, of influence, it's global heads of state, which is also about 7%, right? And we know that the population is actually roughly 51% female, 49% male. We can, you know, shave off a few percentage points on either of those for, you know, trans and non-binary identities. But if we want to say that we live in an equal and just and meritocratic society, and we have 7% women's representation in those two seats of power, it's still pretty clear a patriarchy. Yeah, that's right. I was actually, I, my, my husband's father gave um, both my, my kids these uh, really nice books that I think his father had had, and they're American history books. And when you flip through these books, man, is it ever telling? Like, there are no women at all. Uh, the every the people who formed the government there, who who were you know formed everything about the structure of that society, were all, according to the history books, anyway, white men. It was. Uh, it's just very. It's so jarring to see that, you know, in contrast, and really not that long ago. And I was actually only recently reminded, I had totally maybe blocked this out of my brain somehow, that, you know, the reason why we have, you know, miss, like miss and misses is this symbol of the transfer of ownership, right? Um, I was reading something recently, and I, and I realized that, oh, yeah, that's why women change their last names, <laughs> Right. Um, and it's interesting how I feel like a failed feminist. Like, I feel like I really haven't done my part. You know, I mean, I think you're a better feminist than I am. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, we, we can take some notes from Roxanne Gay's book, uh, Bad Feminist, right? Like the, yeah. there, it's hard when it's a measuring stick like that. Um, but, you know, 
I'm, I'm 32 years old. Uh, I'm of the age where, you know, my partner and I are considering marriage. A lot of my friends are getting married, those kinds of things. And this generation of women and men are grappling with this, with these name changes and, and how do we navigate this? And, you know, women have these professional designations, they're out earning their partners and, and, you know, we don't have role models always to look forward to of how did we navigate these conversations? And so, um, you know, I think as well to something to, to really come to here. For example, um, I run a lot of unconscious bias workshops, definitely more a couple of years ago when they were like super trendy and, and you know, they've changed a lot now. But um, I had a woman when we did a session and we did an implicit association test about gender and careers, and she came up with a bias of women and family versus men and career. And she pushed back and said to me, you know, like, this is the situation in my family, but I like it. I want to be, you know, a stay-at-home mom for a period. And, and that's how my parents were and, and whatnot. And here's the thing, those unconscious biases or conscious or however we want to think about them, they're totally fine. They only become problematic when we use that to measure everyone else's labor participation against, right? When we say women are not concerned mothers when they go back to work or that fathers, you know, shouldn't be stay-at-home caregivers, right? So, um, you know, this is the thing with gender norms. I think if you subscribe to more traditional ones, that's all well and fine. It's it's really that boundary of once you become prescriptive and and start measuring that everyone else should subscribe to those norms as well, where it gets problematic. Yeah, I totally, I get it. And also I think there's something that's very complicated that's associated with that. And that's just the unpaid labor market, which is so important in our overall economy. And where, um, what because what that means is that women become in quite a dependent situation financially and the the wealth gap is pretty significant you know with you know for every dollar a man has in wealth which is something else i recently learned a woman has 30 cents so that puts women in a really potentially vulnerable situation when um and this is i think something that couples will really be grappling with and, you know, and younger generations are looking very differently about how they're going to manage that within their family. Because I think the other thing that's, that's a challenge related to our workforce and just the culture of work today is that it's really difficult in a family to have two full careers going because the, the, the demand of work is such that we really, I think, I mean, in my experience, one person usually ends up having to take a bit of a backseat career wise, because it's just too difficult, unless you're going to make really be in a position financially to outsource a lot of your home and child responsibilities. It's incredibly difficult to have two people going full steam career wise. And then, of course, traditionally, it tends to be mostly women who end up taking that backseat. Not always the case, and that's changing a little bit, but it's it's usually been that way, right? Totally. And yeah. I saw a really interesting tweet, and not to like go on a whole other tangent. Like, I, I'm a very pragmatic, like systems thinker. So, you know, I'll name patriarchy, I'll name white supremacy, I'll name you know capitalism as as the actual root causes of a lot of these issues, because. Um, you know, it used to be that one individual earned enough for the cost of living to actually be able to, you know, afford a home and all these family activities. And, you know, now we live in this, you know, empowered world where we have these dual income earners. But the reality is, if we didn't, we couldn't afford it, right? Exactly. And so it's this like, this is the confluence and the intersectionality of capitalism and, and patriarchy and, and how we're trying to navigate those things as well, too. So, uh, the calculations are definitely shifting a lot. And, and we, as, as this generation and future generations have to grapple with that. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Um, you know, when we think about, about careers and the page patriarchy and, and men's careers in particular, it seems that men are mostly the, the beneficiaries, right? So, you know, for example, men get a higher return on their investment for their education, just purely by virtue of the fact that they 
as you said earlier, they they tend to rise through leadership ranks more readily. They tend to earn more money. They tend to have just more career options still. And sport is certainly an amazing example of that, where there just are avenues that are just not even open to women. Um, so what's the problem, I guess, you know, like for men, it seems like all's good for, for them, but I know we've also talked about that this is hurtful to men. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, starting with that definition earlier and, you know, proving my point that patriarchy does exist, then to your point, the next question is, okay, why does that matter to me? Right. And when we think about that, we can extrapolate a lot of harm that men experience from patriarchy. We know that today men are three out of four suicides. Um, and the, the, the jarring statistic that everyone, you know, is really concerned of is young adolescent males within that because it is actually the number one killer of young adolescent males in, in Canada. Wow. However, the actual majority of those suicides are 55 to 65 year old men. And that's when they're struggling with job loss, divorce, identity crisis, right? They've subscribed to this model of the world where if they behave a certain way, they'll have a certain level of power, privilege, you know, financial benefits, status, et cetera. And when they get there, they're miserable. You know, they're on their second wife, their kids are estranged, they're one bad day away from a heart attack, and they can't cope. Right. And I'm, I'm painting generalizations there, but I think we can all kind of imagine that story. Men on average have five year shorter lifespans than women due to lack of health seeking and help seeking behaviors. Um, men are the primary perpetrators of all forms of violence. And actually, if you take gender based violence out of that, they're actually the number one victims of all forms of violence, too, because we as men treat other men very poorly as well, too. It, we're steeped in a culture of competition and domination. Um, men are, you know, staggeringly higher rates of overdose, uh, incarceration, homelessness, right? And so, sure, we are definitely the primary beneficiaries of patriarchy. I definitely won't, you know, uh, take anything away from that. But it is very clear that this system is not working for us either. Yeah. My observation, just based on the men I've known in my life, is that I don't feel like men are really raised to deal with their shit as much as women are, you know, and, and I, I'm sort of starting to, to believe that every, even when we look at leadership development, if we want better experiences in organizations for employees and we want better leaders, it really is focusing on your own stuff and sorting out your triggers and May, tell me if you agree with me, but I, I feel like men are not raised to do that the same way that women are. They're not allowed to be vulnerable. They're not allowed to talk to their friends and support network about what's going on and how they're feeling. And maybe to some degree, just naturally in their DNA, they aren't as readily apt to do that. But at the same time, I just think so much of it is upbringing. I would push back a little bit on the the natural DNA piece. Like okay. I, I'm, you know, when we get in these conversations about nature versus nurture, to me, like, so, like, like 98% of it is nurture, right? There's, there's two, two or 3% biological difference between men and women. Like, I'll acknowledge that. But, you know, we, we obsess about those, those small ends of the bell curve when it's the messy metal middle that we need to deal with. Right. And I'll tell you from personal experience of even just my own entry point into my passion for this. Um, you know, you can't tell on a, on a podcast, but I'm six foot eight. I I'm a tall, straight white male um, in terms of the world and identities of, of privilege and power. I'm incredibly blessed in that sense. Despite that in my career as uh, on the path to becoming a semi-professional basketball player at 19 years old, I was battling really deep depression. Um, and my coping mechanism at the time was binge drinking and partying as young people do, which ended up with me flunking out of university and losing the opportunity to play the sport I love and, and the identity I wrap myself around. I was able to bounce back from that, transferring to a new program, building myself back up, became a Canadian all academic athlete, you know, so you're like, okay, Jake's doing all right. He's back on the right track. 22, miserable again, right? Deep depression. Um, and my coping mechanism at the time was self-harm, 
And, um, you know, I ended up going to therapy, I ended up unloading on my partner at the time, you know, a lot of men use women for their emotional labor of, you know, I've never told anyone this before. And, and it feels really intimate and, you know, progress in the relationship, et cetera, et cetera. But the burden that that places on the relationship is so profound where, you know, this woman, okay, she's holding this, this, this information, but, you know, should she step out? Should she, you know, leave? like the threat to that man's well-being because this is the one person who knows them for who they are is so severe Mm -hmm. and going to therapy coming to really understand it was that masculine script you got to be tough you can't show emotion you can't ask for help and seeing also that my father didn't necessarily subscribe to that it wasn't necessarily the strongest thing he was very stoic we're we're an east european family so i think i've seen him you know cry once in in his life so so there's that aspect of it but he wasn't prescriptive about it he was a good man he was very gender equitable in the work at home and his caregiving with me so you know if i didn't necessarily fully inherit it from him that just goes to show how strong the current is in in society right in in the locker rooms that i was raised in as an athlete um and so it, it starts, you know, I, from pre-birth, it starts with these, these, you know, sex reveals that we call gender reveals, blue and pink, all the aspirations we put on these tiny human beings before they're even, you know, outside of the womb. It starts with the fact that there's studies that show that mothers think that their male babies can crawl a steeper incline than their girl babies, which then, um, you know, translates into their risk tolerance for their child. And, you know, it goes to, at some point, a lot of men start, you know, retracting their affection from their male children because they didn't get that. And they think that this is how they raise a man. And, you know, those boys internalize that, you know, boys and men shouldn't be touchy-feely with one another. And and they need that as, like, we're, you know, we're at best monkeys with plans. And so, you know, we we need that that nurturance. And so the way that we get it is, is roughhousing. And, and that is the birth of boys will be boys, because that's the only way we have permission to expend that energy and, and need for touch with one another. And then, you know, um, we go into these classrooms where girls have also on a separate parallel been, you know, um, socialized that to achieve, they need to be prim and proper and focused and, and get results because this is the society and, and how they'll get far. And so they're sitting in this educational setting, setting where these girls are ready to achieve and these boys have all this pent up energy. And someone says, oh, well, these boys are deficient. They have learning deficiencies. And, and you know, we over prescribe them with ADHD, start pumping them full of, you know, whatever. And they, they internalize that I'm broken. I don't fit. And they cry and they're upset about it. And then someone says, boys don't cry. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that that's what they internalize. And then we throw them in the pool of sport and welcome to the world of competition and domination. Right. Right. And, you know, you you're running up the field in soccer and you trip and fall and you you hurt you skin your knee and you're you're crying and you've got a coach who you know yells at you to man up right and maybe you're not even that hurt but you just want someone to acknowledge your pain that you've fell and and then you know you start manning up and then you get into your early teens and you get um you know someone telling you that the measure of a man is losing your virginity and you know your your interactions with the opposite sex become with that solely in mind and then at some point in time, a, a young woman might entertain such an idea with you. And, you know, she gets nervous and scared because neither of you have ever done this before. And she says, no, stop, please. And you push through because through your whole life, you've been socialized that your feelings don't matter, that you have to overcome them and, and subdue them. And then we wonder why, you know, the majority of, of young women's experiences are not necessarily wanted, right? Not necessarily assault, but not the way they had imagined or hoped for, right? right? So, you know, there's a pipeline here and it's all these different micro things. And And I know that I just shared a sensationalized story, but again, I think that everyone can see that within themselves or young men around them. Yeah, absolutely. And it really takes generation over generation over generation, really. Like the thing is that I I think the thing that maybe, maybe this is what struck you too, but I I know when I was, you know, going to university and thinking about starting out my career, I just thought, 
yeah, there's been there's been um, a lot of inequity, but that's my generation isn't going to experience that. And I, it's only looking back now. I'm I'm just in my early fifties. I'm you're a lot younger than I am, and I'm I'm talking a lot to people your age, and it's just it's so astounding to me that you know that realization that so little has really changed. And in some ways, yes, a lot's changed. I know people will say, "Well, women are doing this and that." True, but it's so slow. So yeah, slow to change. The re- the research is showing that actually many young women feel that they are not encumbered by their gender until it happens to them in a workplace setting, right? And and you know, I it's not so surprising because you know, we've invested in in girls empowerment, whether that be camps or programs or other opportunities. They're getting better grades than boys all through primary education. The, um, you know, uh, actually getting more higher education. There's, you know, things that we can nickel and dime between that, like engineering programs and those kinds of things. Again, it's slow to change there, but but more broadly, women are more educated than young men. Um, when we come to entry-level positions, it's 50-50. There's not even that much of a wage gap anymore. Of course, there, there, it can happen and whatnot. I'm making generalizations, but you know, the 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 path to that certain point is generally an equitable one. But then, when it comes to promotion, they come up against young men who have been socialized in competition domination, and so that's how they perceive this in the workplace. And and not only are men doing that to women, but they're doing it amongst themselves too. Right. Um, and then you compound that with the missing bottom rung. You know. The, to, to your point earlier, you know, there's absolutely a wealth gap, which is, you know, the investing gap, the equity gap, the, the wage gap, all that stuff wrapped up together. But we see there's not as much of a glass ceiling anymore. And if women manage to get to those spaces, they're decently well compensated. The issue is that missing bottom rung where women are starting their families and they're taking that time to do something that billions of humans have done today to start families, otherwise we wouldn't be here and they're being penalized for it, right? And men don't have that off-ramp. So it's natural for them to receive those promotions. So I'm incredibly bullish on men taking parental leave as like a huge, huge, huge uh, gender equity lever. Yeah, I wanna come, yeah, let's, um, before we go into that a little bit, um, yeah, the other the other thing is women, to your point, have been, they're, they're more universe, uh, university graduates by quite a bit now are women. Um, so you're right, women have been preparing themselves and being prepared well for the workplace and well to accelerate in the workplace, which is why it's so frustrating to see that that's not happening. And and it's so frustrating for women to get to that point in their career where they're coming up against these obstacles that sometimes are really even hard to see. Like you take a step back and go, hey, wait a minute, what happened to my career? <laughs> you know, like what's going on here? Um, and and there's- a, there? Yeah. I love that you use the word accelerate because I use the analogy that we've been pushing on the gas pedal for women and girls under the banner of feminism over the last 70 plus years. The issue is simultaneously, we've been holding down the brake pedal with men and boys. So we are spinning out, we're burning rubber right now. And that's that frustration. And we have not created a parallel conversation um, for and with men. We've been talking about men, but we've not been talking for and with them about their roles and identities in society. And that's causing that break. And so as we champion women in science, technology, engineering, math, politics, leadership, that's great work. We still have much progress to go. But if we don't create off-ramps for men out of these male-dominated spaces, we're actually just adding to a pressure cooker. And they do see it as zero sum. If more women are taking up these spaces, where am I to go? What is my value? How can I contribute to society? So parental leave is part of that. Um, Flexible caregiving and, and being engaged fathers is part of that. 
championing men into early childhood education, nursing, caregiving, traditionally female dominated spaces is an off ramp to that and allowing men to not tie their sense of self-worth to their production or to what they bring home is a piece of that. That work, if we do that, we will find better gender balance in a quicker way, but we're not doing that work. Yeah. No, you, you said exactly where I was going to go, which is that we've put this focus in women, but we haven't put the same focus in. Okay. So what does this mean for men and how do we, how do we make caregiving? Okay. For them? How do we make these other options attractive for them? And, um, yeah, you know, you said something really interesting before when we spoke, which was a bit of an aha moment for me, actually. We talked about the number of people who, I think the way you said it was how many, what was the most um, common job that men put on their whatever. Tax forms. Tax yeah. form. And you said it was truck drivers, right? Correct. Yeah, the, the most employed the largest employer group of men in Canada is truck drivers right and what is one of the the professions that is most likely to be taken over by AI autonomous trucks autonomous trucks and so you know what can't be automated is caregiving absolutely you, you not. can't automate yeah. you know all of that stuff and so I I feel like this is where there's going to be a lot of career opportunity is in those more um, maybe traditionally female dominated roles, but in those sort of caregiving type roles. Um, and we need, you know, to your point, and hopefully maybe if more men do it, they'll pay better. Yeah, it's, it's a really unfortunate fallacy in the sense, but um, we've seen, like, for example, early computer programmers were women because it was like secretarial work and, and doing that stuff. But then as it evolved, more men went into that space and, and now compensation is just unreal in that. That's one quick example. But um, as we see men move into those female dominated spaces, we will likely see the wage floor rise. Um, and it's, again, unfortunate that that is the catalyst to do it, but hopefully it's a benefit that, that also transfers across uh, sexes and, and um, you know, especially uh, like the, the more intersectionally marginalized individuals, women of color, for example, in those spaces, um, because men have those privileged positions to be advocates for their compensation, their work security, those kinds of things, uh, more so in a patriarchal society. So, so it is unfortunate, but I, I think that's what we really need to look towards. And um, there's such a long way to get there because, you know, there's such stigma, like it, it, it's, it's in the smallest things in society. When, when kids are, are babysitters growing up, it's girls, you know, nobody leaves their younger children with boys, right? Not nobody, again, generalized language, but it's, it's not as normal, right? And then, you know, if you're an adult male and you maybe don't have a kid in, in, on the soccer team and you're coaching, People look at you weird when you want to be engaged with kids, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, those are some of the stigmas that we have to overcome, especially in, in that early childhood education space. And, and I have to caveat that with there's been some tremendous abuses if we see within Boy Scouts and the Catholic Church and those kinds of things. So, you know, I think people have a right to be suspicious for sure. But like, rather than just writing men off from that, how do we, how do we overcome that? How do we work within that space? Right. Um, and then further, you know, those nursing caregiving roles, we have an aging population, right? Like that is going to be a huge growth vertical is, is healthcare, caregiving, you know, uh, long-term care centers through COVID have been absolutely devastated, right? And that's mm -hmm, what, mm -hmm. you know, we should all be scared of that because, you know, we're headed in that direction. So we need to champion change within those spaces. So how do we make it attractive, stable, good employment that people can go towards? Exactly. And even in organizations, and I, I sort of, I, I'm still evolving my thinking on this. Um, so this might sound a little rough, but, you know, I always imagined that, that that was sort of part of the role of HR in an organization to, you know, be that more that that's to ha have that representation of what's really going on for people. How are they managing through change? Um, you know, how, how is, how are they being emotionally impacted, helping people process things? Um, and it is, 
I feel like there's this, this, that missing component of caregiving in organizations too. And lately I've been, I'm, um, something came to my attention recently where I was talking with somebody about the Star Trek series. Did you watch Star Trek Next Generation growing up? I, I, I'm awful at pop culture references. Okay. Uh, my partner's you, a Trekkie though, so she, she could probably answer it. But do you know the character it. of Deanna Troy? Uh, Probably not. Okay. My apologies. Um, all right. This is this will be for another day because I'm okay. working. I'm working through this thing, but yeah, just this. Um, you know, in the C-suite and senior leadership roles in organizations, um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of allowance for just you know processing emotion, allowing room and space for that, and I feel like that's just something that is so missing in organizations. Um, and that's in large part, I think, because of the gender inequality. Absolutely. It's a manifestation of patriarchy. I mean, even yeah. when we think about HR's role within that, HR is predominantly a female dominated field because it is an aspect of caring, which has resulted in it being one of the most marginalized uh, sectors or departments within organizations and minimized to basically cover people's asses rather than actually be transformative leadership. So I, I work with a lot of HR professionals through the work that we do, and I feel for them because they don't have as strong a voice at the table saying, hey, if we're going to get to the goals we want, this is what we should do. It's more on the tech side. It's more on the finance side. It's more on the sales side, right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, that's who comes up through through organizations. And, you know, these leaders are, are conditioned again for performance, right? And it's all about the incentives, whether it be a startup and, and their equity value within that and, you know, what they can quote unquote exit for. Or it's, you know, CEOs who have the majority of their, um, you know, compensation tied to stock prices. So they're pushing for stock buybacks rather than actually focusing on the performance of the organization, right? Like the incentives are so skewed in, in society and culture and, and workforces today. And uh, we're all paying the price for it. And we all complain about it, but, but there's few people really championing that, that change that we need. Yeah, hopefully more and more. I'm hoping. Um, so, listen. What do you What do you say? I mean, you said at the very beginning you get pushback, and full. You know, I I would be reluctant to talk about this with a lot of people. Actually, even a lot of people I'm pretty close to, because I would be uncomfortable. And I think, and I I, I feel like if I'm going to bring this up, I have to be really prepared because. If I get, I'm going to get pushback. I know I am from women too. Right. So, you know, it, which is unfortunate, but um, what is your advice to women who want to have these conversations? Like, you know, maybe in the workplace, let's, let's talk about in the workplace in particular, because I think women are think have, I know for me, I grew up thinking, well, yeah, but I'm so cool. Like I'm one of the guys and I can hang with the guys and guys like me, right? So that was going to be what all that mattered. But um, yeah, so, you know, it, that didn't necessarily play out entirely. Um, I don't know. What do you suggest to women who who are nervous about coming up against? Yeah, I mean, I have to caveat this with the fact that like, um, I, I can swear on this, right? Yeah, I already did, I think. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. But, um, you know, women are fed up with our shit, right? Yeah. Like, and, and rightfully so. Like, they're impatient, they're angry, they're frustrated. I get all that, right? However, it's a really hard place to make progress from. It, it, it pe gets people really defensive and whatnot. And, and by no means am I advocating for coddling, you know, men. Uh, grown men who should be able to, to deal with this. That, that's not my intention. So with that disclaimer out of the way, um, curiosity is a really powerful tool. Um, you know, trying to find a way that, like we all have this fundamental human question of what's in it for me, right? And so if you're trying to change gender dynamics in a workplace and you're just saying, hey, women this, women that, benefit this way, et cetera, et cetera, and you're speaking to a male leader who, you know, hasn't 
questioned or thought about these things, it's often going to fall on deaf ears. If they're first born as a daughter, there's maybe some hope, which is, again, a really unfortunate thing that, you know, many married men still can't think about this, but they're thinking about it for their daughters. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if we can find, you know, there's, there's a report that Deloitte did, a, a, a friend and, and colleague, uh, Eric Arthrell, and oh, I'm so blanking on his, his co-author's name right now, but either way, two uh, Deloitte inclusion specialists wrote a, a, a report um, called The Design of Everyday Men. And it talks specifically about how male-dominated cultures, male-led cultures, uh, the, the status of work as is, is harmful to men, right? Um, so is that an entry point to share in the office and say, hey, what do you guys think of this, right? Is this true? Does this resonate, right? Like, are you feeling this? Or, you know, talking with guys, you know, one thing that I do when my friends are expecting, um, you know, rather than have the conversation of, are you going to take Tom off? I say, how much time are you going to take, right? Setting the expectation that they should take time, right? And so it's these little tweaks of trying to find that like self-interest and self-motivation. And, and it, it's, it sucks that that's the reality of it, but like it works in sales, it works in marketing, it works in all these other facets. Yeah. So how are we applying that to this justice that we're seeking as well too? So that would be one thing. Um, and, and again, with that disclaimer on the front end of it and um, yeah, again, just, just uh, I think uh, the curiosity uh, and Do you empathy. think women should call out stuff like, hey, you interrupted me three times in that meeting? The tough part is she'll probably pay more consequences than than others might. And that, again, acknowledging the unfortunate reality of that. Um, there's an opportunity if you have a working relationship with the individual to call them in privately, right? Um, and say, hey, you know, I, I was really trying to make this point and I felt like you weren't letting me get it. Could you let me get that through? And then giving them the opportunity because I, I'm a really excited speaker and I do this professionally and, and I, I know I'm an interrupter. Um, and it's, it's, you know, maybe maybe it's patriarchy, maybe it's whatnot, but I, I just know that's who I am as a person and I really don't mean to do it. So if you can call that person in and, and have a conversation with them, that's an outlet. If you know that's not going to work and, and you have a ally and a partner, you know, let's say, you know, Deborah, it's happening to you and, and I'm your colleague and you say, hey, Jake, I can't get a word in edgewise in these meetings. Like, do you think you could, um, you know, use some of your social capital? And then, you know, I can say, yeah, totally. Actually, now that you pointed out, like, yeah, you know, Bob does do that. And then next time there's a meeting, I, you know, Bob starts piping up. I can be like, hey, Bob, um, I don't think Deborah was done speaking, right? And, and leveraging some of that social capital and, and, and whatnot. Or, or maybe I don't, don't interrupt Bob anyways. I let him finish his thought. But before we get to the next one, I say, uh, can we just circle back to Deborah? I think she was making a great point. You know, there's a lot of different kind of like practices we can work towards and, and, not anyone is perfect, but but building up the capacity to be fluid within those situations, I think, is really important. Yeah, that's interesting. So we still need male allies to clear the way for us. And, and here's, <laughs> here's the thing with male allies. I don't really like the term, but I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. People know what it means. They get it, all that stuff. So much male allies work is almost perpetuating benevolent sexism. Women should be elevated, protected, but should they be worked for? Should they make more money than us, right? Those are the questions around the power. And to be an ally means you generally have more power than someone and you're, you're leveraging your power to help them. Being an ally should cost you something, time, social capital, money, opportunities, etc. And are we building the capacity within these supposed male allies to spend and incur that cost to actually be allies and move the needle and, and deconstruct and reconstruct these power relationships, I think is, is yeah. important as well. Yeah. So I don't want it to be, you know, like that example, only men can save women in that sense. But, you know, if 
if they have that power and privilege and, and are willing to spend that social capital, like the, the results will come quicker than, than, you know, women banging on unheard doors, which is, has been the reality for such a long time. Yeah. And what you're saying right now, what it remind what it comes to mind for me is why I think character is so important in leadership, because the other thing about meritocracy is this, you know, is that, um, well, it's, it works better when you're privileged and wealthy, right? So I'm, I'm reminded of the story of um, uh, William Singer was the guy in the States who ran this massive scam to get um, wealthy families paid him gobs of money. He made like $25 million on, uh, you know, getting kids into Ivy League schools in the United oh, States. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, Lori Laughlin went to jail for that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah the, I, uh, what's her name? The actress was one of the most uh, yeah. well-known uh, Felicity Huffman. Um, right. But there were about 33 families uh, or people charged in that. And so, you know, if we don't have really strong character, like people, in order to be able to do what you've just suggested, you have to have a mind to the greater good, right? And if you're only operating in your own self-interest, and if these are the kind of people, male or female, that we promote through organizations, and these are the kind of people who get into positions of power and influence, then I, I don't think we make a lot of progress on a lot of problems that we need to solve in our society, because they're just they're just the wrong people there to make it happen. Totally. And I mean, going back to that conversation about incentives earlier, right? Like if your compensation is tied to uh, dominating someone else, that's what you're going to do. If if you know you need dual income to afford a nice house in you know downtown Toronto, that's what you're going to do, right? But if we can, um, you know, put humility and compassion through society, um, I think that's important. And I mean. You know, a key example, I don't, I don't want to, you know, come off as like Biden's the best thing that ever happened in America, but like, you know, the juxtaposition of him versus Trump, like there's empathy back in the White House, right? There's a, there's a man who has lived through some very difficult things. And when people bring him difficult problems, he can sit with them and empathize. And like Donald Trump couldn't even make a self-deprecating joke. Right. right. Like if, if we're promoting these these CEOs and VPs who can't even like, you know, laugh at themselves. Right. Yeah. Like that's an incredibly fragile leadership structure. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, for our, our proverbial Bob that we were talking about earlier, if either you bring it up to him privately or I say something in in, you know, the meeting for him to be like, oh, shoot, I'm so sorry. Like, you know, like that's progress. Like, you know, we wish it didn't happen in the first place, but if people can own their mistakes and not get, you know, cast out or canceled or whatever, but actually like, you know, see a path back and belonging and, and work through those difficult things together. Um, yeah. I think you nailed it. Character. Yeah. Because integrity. You, have, you have to have high EQ, right. To be able to go, 100%. Oh, Oh, I didn't realize like, that might not have been in my intention, but I'm listening. That's your, that was your experience. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's talk more about that. Um, I remember hearing uh, an interview with Roger Stone, um, right. You know, <laughs> the guy who dressed, he looks like yeah. a, a caricature of a yeah. villain in a children's yeah. uh, superhero show or something. Anyway. But I remember him, the, the, a line that really stuck with me and why he threw his support behind, you know, Donald Trump becoming Trump uh, president one day was he, I just remember him saying, he just looks presidential. He just looks presidential, right? Because he's a tall white guy um, and he's got that overconfidence, right? Yep. And, and part of the patriarchy, I think, is that that is what we see as competent. It may not equal competence, in fact, often doesn't, obviously, uh, but are what we naturally see as being that competent leadership figure is someone who looks that way, right? They don't look like a tiny little, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, like, like this tiny little woman, right? They don't look like that. 
I mean, I'm I'm considered a quote unquote, you know, gender equity champion in in the ecosystem or whatever. But you know, I have a bachelor's degree. I'm I, I get on stages because I'm a tall, straight white male who can speak with fluency around these issues. But I share those stages often with women with PhDs and dissertations and things that they've worked so hard to do. Like I absolutely benefit from that dichotomy. But it's okay, fine. If you're in those spaces, what are you going to do with it after? Right. And, and um, so I really just see my role as, as giving other people permission to lean into the difficult conversations, to have a level of fluency around it, to share their stories of struggle. Like I'm definitely not perfect. You know, eight years ago when I, you know, retired at the ripe old age of 24 from, from semi-pro sports, did I think I'd be doing this work? No, it's been a journey. Right. But I can tell people about that journey and, and the different lessons I've gotten along the way. And so um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel you on that and it's, it's, you know, how do we transform this and, and empower the people who, who are in place to, to, um, lean into it? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, let's go back to meritocracy for a second. This is something I wanted to dive into a little bit because this is something I find a little frustrating because even very recently with uh, the power gap articles that are, have, been, have come out recently in the Globe and Mail, you know, organizations are still leaning on this idea that, well, we don't, we don't have that many women, but, you know, we, we hire and promote on merit. And we need to protect the meritocracy. I feel like if that was working, we'd see a lot more different faces in, you know, different professions and at, at all levels of leadership. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, before I dive into my thoughts on meritocracy, I do want to quickly plug for listeners as well. Uh, Canada Land uh, released a really interesting uh, critique of the Power Gap series, specifically around intersectionality and, and how, how few women of color are represented in that and even in the methodology and whatnot. I thought it was a really great series, but like definitely need to push it forward. So um, just want to share that. Uh, meritocracy is really interesting because um, I so I, I now live in Vancouver. I lived in Alberta prior to that. Um, I think I moderated one of the first gender equity panels amongst major oil and gas producers with uh, four or five CEOs, I think. And in advance of that panel, I audited all of their websites. And each and every single one really harped on meritocracy. They like, you could just see how threatening it was in, in that, in that um, uh, sector. And um, one thing that I often think about with, with meritocracy, you know, people think that it's uh, affirmative action uh, to promote, you know, women, people of color, those kinds of things. And I actually challenge and kind of, I think a lot about jujitsu in this work. Um, it's actually the ending of affirmative action for men because our hiring pool, our competition used to actually just be people who look like us. And now it's a broader pool. So it feels even more threatening to us, right? So really where does that affirmative action sit? Where does that myth of meritocracy sit? And um, the reality is, you know, I could probably entertain people's ideas around meritocracy. I think it's it's an ideal that we should work towards. But when you challenge them on show me your rubric, show me the hard numbers you're measuring against. And you know what? Even if you if you talk about likability, put it on a scale. Tell me why this person's a seven and that person's a five. Right. So, you know, you can tout meritocracy all you want, but until you actually have a rubric and you can share that publicly and, and justify those conversations and show actually how many people are in your funnel to begin with, you don't have meritocracy. So right. I think, you know, whenever there's an opportunity to, you know, challenge and question and push back on that, we should absolutely take it. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right that the playing field just like, it hasn't been that competitive really because a lot of people have just been left out of it. Um, and, uh, and the shame in that is that there's this huge missed opportunity of we could be doing so many things so much better, you know, if we had, because we, we don't have the brightest minds and the most capable people in every space because 
obviously we just don't because all these people are being left out of it, you know? I mean, when your competition is all the Davids, Thomases and Michaels, it's, you know, uh, it goes to show and, 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 you know, I'm, I'm being facetious about that. I think it was actually John, but there's more John CEOs than there are women in the fortune 500. Yeah. the, The latest, what I heard is, is for Canada specifically. And it was, um, I don't know if it was a TSX, but it was, a, it was more more men named Michael than there are women. Yeah, that's pretty shocking, actually. Um, so anything else you want to say before we start to wrap up? I want, I want to give you the opportunity just to talk a little bit about Next Gen Men and what, and what, what your organization does. Yeah, I don't think I have anything in particular. Um, you know, I'm really passionate, as, as hopefully folks can tell, about um, engaging in these male-dominated spaces. Um, not necessarily specifically male-identified leaders, but just the spaces and, and people who occupy the leadership there, because, you know, there's cultures within that. And, you know, we've seen lots of um, female leaders uh, lean in as they say, and, and start ask, acting out as, as male leaders would in, in those spaces to get by. And, and you know, that, that's a, a coping mechanism that, you know, if it serves them well, I, I can appreciate where that comes from, but it perpetuates a lot of the same issues and, and doesn't leave to, to, you know, psychologically safe work. Um, and I think it's, it's really just a broader piece of, of the work that we do at Next Gen Men, right? We started with a youth program working at 12 to 14, with 12 to 14 year old boys uh, six years ago. Um, it's in our name, the next generation of men. We wanna be you know, primary prevention and, and make sure that we're giving organizations great male leaders as they come up uh, to, to really transform this. But you know, we need to do that work downstream, but we also need to deal with what's going on right now. So you know, we do stuff in the community to spark c- critical conversations around gender and masculinity. We're working in these industries. Um, and I really see it as a life cycle approach and a culture change approach of, of how patriarchy um, exists in society and, and how we're navigating uh, this change that we're all going through. Yeah. There's a lot of change coming, I think, in the next couple decades. And what I'm my hope is that, you know, we can co-create something better because I, I really think it wasn't co-created originally. And now we need to co-create so and and i think just life in general could be so much better better for everyone if we can manage to do that amen to that amen to that okay well jake it's largely on you and i and a couple other people (laughs) we're recruiting we're we're recruiting yes we're recruiting new members thank you so much for doing this today i so appreciate it i want to stay connected with you and and with next gen men and we can keep talking about this stuff thanks so much Thank you for listening. If you want to see more about Jake's work at Next Gen Men, you can check out their website at www.nextgenmen.ca. And for Jake's work specifically with leaders, check out Equity Leaders at www.equityleaders.org. Hey, I'm planning for season two of the Work Revolution podcast. I am considering a slightly different format and thinking about lots of different possible topic ideas, and I'd love to get your feedback. If you've been listening, tell me a little bit about what's been resonating with you and what hasn't and what you might like to hear more of. You can get in touch with me at deborah at workrevolution.ca or on Instagram at work underscore revolution. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, please spread the word and rate and review the show. Thanks so much. Until next time.